Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, where legends share legendary stories. Presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. This episode, part two of our nine for Title IX series. Featuring Baylor basketball legend, Susie Snyder Eppers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. Score a three-pointer and book your stay at the Hampton Inn Waco. This is episode two of our Nine for Title IX series, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX with conversations with nine women who are a part of Texas sports history. We chat today with Susie Snyder Eppers, the first female athlete to receive an athletic scholarship at Baylor University. She starred in basketball for Baylor in the early to mid-1970s, and she's here to share some tremendous history about her career that landed her in the Texas Sports Hall of Fame as part of the 2022 class. Be sure to keep up with our 9 for Title IX series, as well as all of the great things happening at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame's social media pages on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And as always, please tell your friends about the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Thank you for being with us, Susie. Let's start off by talking about how you got started in sports. Well, I I have to go back to my childhood days. I was born and I grew up in Waco. And I had an older brother. His name was Donnie. And he was uh, three years older than me. And he was kind of the neighborhood athletic stud. I grew up in a neighborhood pretty much filled with boys. I only can remember one girl. So I always tagged along with my brother and begged for them to let me in and the baseball games that they played. We had a nice lot that we, we were able to play in. And when football came around, we played football. And I was kind of the grunt. When I got picked, I was always picked to do the dirty jobs. I play the line or do... I always wanted to be a receiver. And I knew I couldn't be the quarterback because he was. But anyway, it all really started back with him. He really taught me to be a a competitor. He actually was on the 1965 Waco Northern Little League World Series team, and uh, they ended up getting third that year in the nation at the World Series, and after that, I was kind of hooked. I thought, what in the world can I do? And so it started there, and then, of course, my dad, because my brother started in junior high before me, he built us a basketball backboard and uh, put it on the lot next to our house. And it was just a painted piece of, I don't know, two-by-fours, whatever he made it with. And he put a goal on there, and he nailed it to a tree for us. And it was just a big part of my upbringing as a beginning athlete. I wasn't a great ball handler, but I became a better one, and I credit it because of all the roots and stones that were in the ground because we didn't have a paved area. We were just playing on the dirt. We lived on a hill. Our lot was level, but our that dropped off into this hill that went down for, I don't know, about six house lots down past this lot that he put this backboard on for us. 
and you learn to become a pretty accurate shooter because if you missed it, the ball would roll down the hill into the woods. And I'm telling you, it was really creepy for me to have to go down in those woods to retrieve a ball. I had and still have a fear of snakes, and I'm telling you, you just thought, no, it's just better to go ahead and make it. Talk about pressure shooting. I needed to make every shot I shot. Yeah, now that is some true pressure shooting the ball there. Now, you were fortunate enough to have school organized sports at a fairly young age for that time. As I got into the sixth grade, we had regular physical education class in Robinson. And Mr. Oliver, who was our principal, he also was the seventh and eighth grade girls basketball coach. Well, he came to us one day in our PE class and he said, I'm wondering if I can get enough girls if, they, if y'all want to go play against a neighboring school. And the school was Golson. And oh my goodness, man, my hand shot up along with about, I don't, I don't know, I guess there were probably about 10 of us that raised our hands to, to do it. And he said, well, okay, we're going to have like two practices and then we're going to go play them. I'm going to set this up. We're going to play them after school. So we did. And I'm going to tell you, after then, I knew then that that's what I was going to do. I didn't know how good I would be at it, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And at that time, I was fairly tall for my age, so I could shoot a, a semi, let me say, jump shot. So we, I think, I, I can't even remember if we won the game, but I was just, I can remember being so excited to get to play against, the, you know, another set of girls. And we learned the rules real quick. That was the beginning for me as far as basketball goes. I get asked a lot of questions about basketball, but track, I was probably as strong of a track athlete as I was a basketball player. And he introduced me to throwing the shot put. Uh, he took me up one day. He said, hey, I've talked to your parents. He says, it's okay. I'm going to take you up to the high school after school today. He said, I want you to try something new. He says, I want you to throw. It's called a shot put. And he says, it's about the size of a softball. And I thought, well, this will be fun. So I went up there. Well, one, it wasn't a softball. It was uh, eight-pound shot. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get to compete in any meets. But he just exposed me to it, and I, I went up there a couple of times and was able to practice with the junior high and high school girls, and I knew that I probably could do that in the future just because I was beating the kids that we had that were competing in junior high. So that kind of was the beginning for me of both sports. You later went to Robinson High School, and your school had a great rivalry with Midway. I went to Robinson High School. Midway was our rival. And uh, back in that day, no one played full court basketball. No one played five on five. Uh, all basketball was very unique in the six on six game. And, and some people call it three on three, but it's, it was six on six, but we, we could not cross the dividing half court line. There would be three forwards on one end, and then you had three defensive players on the other end. Back in that day, just your district champion went on into the playoffs. And it was so sad because Robinson and Midway, we were so close that whoever got out of the district for the four years that I was in high school was either a state champion or went all the way to the state tournament. A lot of times the state championship was played in our district. It was an awesome experience. When we played Midway, we played in front of 1,500 to 2,000 people. The fire marshals would shut the gym. You could hardly throw a ball in out of bounds because the crowd leaked over into the out of bounds anywhere they could fit. 
and they find up on stages, like at Midway they had a stage at the end of their court. They had chairs up there. I mean, this thing was packed. That just must have been fantastic to play in those games. And then your team won the UIL state championship your freshman year. What do you remember about that experience? The wonder of that was because we had one senior on our team, Cindy Meadows. She led us. She was our our point guard. I played most of my career in junior high and high school with the grade above me. So that year we were predominantly a sophomore-oriented team, and then I was the only freshman on the team. All games were played in Austin. matter of fact, all state championships were played in Austin. We played at Gregory Gym there, which is a wonderful old gym. The old wood bleachers, a lot of character in the floor. I mean, it was just, you walked in there and you knew you were in a basketball gym. But um, that place was packed. As a college gymnasium, it was packed. The communities really supported the teams. And also at that time now, your larger schools did not play. The real competitiveness was in your 1A, 2As, and 3As. And then it developed in the 4 and 5As. So girls' high school basketball was very popular in small towns back then. Always a lot of fun. We played in a Baylor tournament, and we would fill the Rena Mars Gymnasium down there. It was just a magical time. And for me, that's the way I thought girls' basketball was. So when I went to Baylor, it was a real shock for me that things weren't that way but the story of my high school is our freshman year we lost to midway in the Baylor tournament which was a Christmas tournament and then we came back and we uh we lost to them at home in a district game so it came down we opened our gymnasium at Robinson we had a brand new gymnasium built we opened that gym the opening night was going to be the night we played midway and we played them, and it was, again, the crowd, the enthusiasm. We go in there, and <laughs> we get down to the end of the game, and we ended up winning the game 50-49. to 49. They had the ball, and they missed the last-second shot, and the place came unglued. Robinson had arrived, and I'm telling you, we finally did what everyone had wanted to do at Robinson. And once we beat them and knew that we could, we never lost to them again until my senior year. High school girls basketball in Texas at that time had six players, three on each side of the court, and you mostly played offense. But you mentioned that your high school coach, Bill Bradley, also put you in at defense a couple of times. I was a post player and very fortunate because in a 3A school, Cindy Meadows was, I'm thinking she's around 5'10". But I played with another Sam McKinney a year older than me, and she was six foot tall. I was six foot, pushed up to six one, or grew up to six one. And then on our defensive end, they weren't as tall. I think our tallest guard was five eleven, and then we played two five tens. But they were quick, very quick. Now, Mr. Bradley would occasionally, and if, I, I used to think to myself. Man, I wish you'd practice me at this if you're going to do it. But we went up to Duncanville, and we were playing a school called Klondike. Very good school. They did very well. They had a great year. They had a really strong outside shooter, probably about 5'9 or 5'10. And 
back and forth game and he called a timeout and he said, Okay, I want you to go report in as a guard and I said, What? <laughs> oh, God. I and I thought, Oh no but you know what? He he asked me to do it, I was gonna do it and he thought I could do it, so by George I could do it. Well, I went out there, and I'll never forget that girl. She took a, a last-second shot. She beat us, and she shot that ball right over me. But, you know, I, I learned then that you may can do it, but you may not always be successful, that failure is also part of the game. So later, when we beat, beat Midway 50-49, to 49, he did the same thing to me. He pulled me. <laughs> and we called a timeout and said, okay, it was, they had the ball. There was something like 10 seconds to go in the game. They had it on their end of the court, so, you know, you didn't have to worry about bringing the ball up the court. Well, we darn, he put me back in there, and, I, and these girls were really good. I mean, I sat down there and watched the, their forwards playing, and they were great. They shot great percentage, had great athletes. They were very skilled. And I thought, oh, my goodness, and I'll never forget going out there. Here it was, the end of the game, 10 seconds. Seemed like the longest 10 seconds in my life. But I was out there, and really, you need to know how to defend someone, and I didn't know that. And so when I was out there, I was one of those beginning defenders that wanted to chase the ball and go defend everyone. Well, my girl caught that ball, and I hurried back as fast as I could. She shot it. She missed it. And, I, and that's when we beat them. You weren't designated for the whole game as being guard or forward you could sub out and you can go in on the forward end or you could go in on the defensive end it didn't matter you just didn't get to run the court it was still a half court game that you played while boys were allowed to play full court basketball in high school coach jody conrad when she was on the texas sports hall of fame podcast last year told us there had to be a lawsuit filed to get that changed in the 1970s. When we return, Susie Snyder Eppers will share stories about her groundbreaking career at Baylor and how Title IX helped build Baylor's women's basketball program on our Nine for Title IX series on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. Hi, this is Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman, and I listen to the Texas Hall of Fame podcast. And if you're not listening to it, you're missing out. When you come to Waco, be sure to stay at the Hampton Inn Waco, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll enjoy the Hampton in Waco's free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. Next time you bring your team to Waco, make the Hampton in Waco your home court on the road. Welcome back to our Nine for Title IX series with Baylor women's basketball legend, Susie Snyder Eppers on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton in Waco. Let's start discussing your college career at Baylor now. Title IX passed in June of 1972. When did you graduate high school and when did you start at Baylor? I graduated high school in 73, so I started in the fall of 73. So this is even and after Title IX has passed. It took Title 
nine a while to get all the mandates in place and colleges were getting used to what Title IX meant, questioning what does that mean? Because at one point, my understanding is that Bader was questioning whether they had to follow the mandate. It says in there, you will be denied federal monies if you did not follow the mandate. Well, Bader being private, I think, was trying to decide, does that mean we have to do that? What ended up happening, my coach was a Bader grad. I grew up in Waco most of my life until I was in the fourth grade of which we moved out to Robinson. So it ended up that I talked to my coach. At that time, I I had gotten interest to go play basketball. They could not come and visit with you. A college coach could not come and visit with a female athlete. You could go to a tryout if they had one. That I know of, Baylor didn't have one. There are several schools that were interested in me going for track. But, you know, at that time, I had a passion for basketball. Now, I love track, and I love the events I did. But I really had this burning passion to play basketball. So I told my coach, I said, I really, I, I don't, think that's what I want to do, but I knew I had to go. My dad worked at General Tire. I knew I had to go somewhere to get my education paid for. Wherever that was, that's what I was going to have to do. So my coach talked with Dutch Schrader, who at that time, he had retired from coaching baseball, but he was still teaching at Baylor. He talked to him. He told him that I wanted to come to school there. Did he think there was a chance? And it ended up that what they did was they came up with it was like financial aid. There was a man that I went to church with named Ed Horner. Ed heard that I had wanted to go to school there. and He was on the athletic council, and he heard what was going on, and he went to the council, and he said, you know what, I, I think we need to do something about this. She wants to come to school here. Do we have any kind of scholarship that we can offer her? I don't know what all happened. I've been told that Clyde Hart was asked, by the athletic director, Mr. Patterson, if he would give up one of his scholarships for me to have an athletic scholarship. And that's what I've been told has happened, and that's how the scholarship came about. And so you had the first women's scholarship at Baylor in any sport. Yes. Yes. So you, you get to Baylor, you have a scholarship. How many other women were on scholarship? There was no one. As a matter of fact, I, my freshman year, I played with two seniors, three sophomores, and there were seven freshmen on the team. All these people that came to play, they came to Baylor at, for an education. Some people, once they found out there was a girls' program, and of course there was publicity of me getting this scholarship, you got the sense from Coach Fallen, who was the coach there, you got the sense that uh, it was something in the making but yet it was being offered. So there were girls in the area that were coming to school there, and they just played ball because they liked to play ball. So that's really what this team was made up of. But I do know that at one point there was one freshman that started with me uh, at the same time named Linnell Pyron, and she they finally offered her a partial scholarship. It might have been her sophomore year, but I think it was her junior year. Then there were two transfers that I understand that they offered partial scholarship. Now, I don't, I don't know how much that was. I don't know what that was. But by the time I graduated, that's all the financial help we had as far as athletic money or scholarship. And as we talked about before, you weren't allowed to play 
full court basketball in high school. It was still a half court game. And then you get to Baylor and it is a full court game. You have to adjust to that. The problem that we had, all these freshmen, we'd only played six man ball. We didn't know the full court game. We had to learn that game. Now, for me, I, I loved it, adjusted to it well. I did what I was told to do. I went where I was told to go. Didn't always understand why I did it. Didn't always understand the strategy behind it. But yet, that came more my sophomore year. The problem for us was that in my freshman year, a lot of the people that came to play were def- defensive players. So these, these players had never shot. So they had to learn to shoot the ball. And most of them were decent athletes that they could pick that up. Were they great at it? You know, not as great as they would have been if they played it all through high school. What schools were on the Baylor schedule back then? Let me go to first to the probably number one team, which were the Wayland Flying Queens. They recruited a lot of West Texas basketball players that were excellent. I mean, just excellent, very fundamentally sound. And then we had Sue Gunner was the coach down at SFA. They had a great program. Jody Conrad was up at UTA building a great program before she went to UT. Then we played Tarleton. We came down to Houston a whole lot. We played LSU a lot, especially when we came to the Houston area. We played Sam Houston. Temple Junior College had a great junior college program, nationally ranked, so that we did pick up some games with them. Now, when we played, the schedule was a bit different, too. For a long time, we just went to tournaments. You'd get up in the morning, we'd drive our cars down there. Your own cars, right? Yeah, our own cars. We took, and we all piled into someone that had a larger car. We didn't usually travel with the coach. Uh, We did try to follow one another as players. We traveled that way. We would go down. Sometimes we'd go to just a one-day tournament where we played three games in one day. Then sometimes we'd go down and we might spend the night. And and if if it was a big tournament like that, we'd play like two games on Friday and then we'd play three games. Many weekends we came in at 2 o'clock Sunday morning because we didn't have the money to spend the night. There wasn't much budget into the girls' program. You know, there weren't many pregame meals. The people before me, they actually had to pay for their own meals. Then when I came in, we were given... I don't know. I don't remember how much money it was, but there were many nights that by the time we got through playing, you know, it was late at night and we just stopped at a convenience store and picked up something to eat, you know, just to, something to drink and then you drove on back. Now, as it grew and it, things were happening and changing fast, Title IX was starting again and mandates were starting to be met. So eventually, we usually always dr- drove in our cars uh, there was a time we did go to a couple of tournaments in a van. Uh, it did become a time that we did spend the night in a hotel. You know, we tried to get a pregame meal. They started spreading the games out. Not, not much. Thank goodness we were good enough that we got five games in two days. But it then became we played one game during the week, and then we went to a tournament on the weekend. So we never really had, like, the single games like they have now where they played a game earlier in the week and then one on the weekend or something like that. It it was pretty much my whole career that direction. Susie, on the night you were inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, I was there when you were speaking with a group of people after the induction ceremony who were asking about Title IX's early days. 
you said that there wasn't any concrete knowledge of what it was, but you could tell something was happening. Could you please talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and, and you know, it, it wasn't a burden by any means. And we could see that we were growing and changing. Things were being offered to us, and we were told why. When I first went to Baylor, I, now remember what I came from at Robinson. We had the we had the best equipment, a brand new gym, new uniforms. You know, there, every everything uh, we traveled in vans. We we had pregame meals. We traveled to away tournaments. Then I go to Baylor, and you know, the first thing I find out is that you know our practice uniform. And my biggest fear was it was because back in that time they wore the girls wore a gym suit which was a one-piece outfit that was like shorts and a shirt, but one piece, and it snapped up the front, and I thought, oh, my goodness. And, and I had already had trouble because I was six one, And so a lot of the uniforms that were designed were designed for girls. The average height back then was 5'7". So, you know, everything that we got at Robinson, he had extra length added on everything we bought, and, you know, four inches. At times, and so when I went to Baylor, I th- my first fear was I'm going to have to practice in one of these PE gym suits. Well, thank goodness that was erased pretty quick. They they had quit wearing those, and so we wore the PE uniform, which was a white V-neck sleeveless shirt with a pair of green shorts. And again, it was built for you know a five seven girl. So I'm practicing every day in a shirt that's you know every time I shoot, three to four inches of my stomach are showing. The fact is. You want to have the pride in the way you look. We bought our own shoes. Most of us wore Chuck Taylor high-top canvas shoes. Uh, I'll never forget Linnell. She came up one day and had a pair of leather shoes, and we were. it was like my junior year, and I'm like, wow, where did you get those? Leather, do you like them? You like leather shoes? You know, we're all just uh, you know, enamored with these shoes she has on. It's looking back that makes all this matter. At the At the moment, you get on the court, you strap on your shoes, you play, and you love it. You don't care what you have on. It doesn't really matter. That stuff doesn't matter. But when you look at the growth and you think about Title IX, it does matter. We dressed out in a PE locker room. Our clothes were kept in a rack of cages, uh, and that was our workout clothes. I don't, I don't even think we went underneath at a home game. I don't think we went down to the locker room. I think we stayed on the court. Things started changing. The boys went out to the heart of Texas, Coliseum, their locker room. There was one built out there for them. So we got their locker room that was in Rena Mars, which is where they used to practice. We got their locker room, and it was a pretty nice, you know, varsity-type locker room. We did have a training facility, but we didn't have a trainer. Our assistant coach dealt with our injuries. If we had a serious injury, we were taken out to the football stadium, of which we would be treated when, you know, we sometimes had to go late at night after football was through working out or whatever sport was working out, we would, when the boys were finished, we could go at night, you know, and get treatment. And then we were, along my four years, we were allowed a trainer. Actually, it was someone that was employed already, but that person took the responsibility of being our trainer. We had a grad assistant that was the assistant coach. We never had, my whole time there, we never had a full-paid assistant coach. We did the traveling. It got better, but yet, like I say, when we started going to the national tournament, it was a question, and I think our coach had to kind of fight for us to have the bus, a charter bus that took us to Louisiana. Again, Title IX, I think, 
really behind this. But we had to kind of, it seemed like we had to ask for it to get a lot of the things. That's incredible to think about that the team didn't even have its own trainer at first. Were there other points where you could really see Title IX start to take hold? When I heard other girls were getting partial scholarships, I knew then things were starting to change and to happen. We got nice uniforms, and they were, you know, the length of them was appropriate, and for me, anyway, uh, and I was the tallest girl we had, so, you know, those, Title IX had something to do with with all of that. Now, I think there was still a lot of work going on. I think there was still a lot of resistance. Just the conversations that I did here, it's just like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this, but, you know, we don't want any of this loud talk about you have this or you don't have this and blah, blah, blah. I don't know that we were really asking for total equality. And maybe we were. My deal was just give us an opportunity and treat us like a first-class citizen and not an afterthought. Susie, I think it's important to note that you came from a high school where your games were well-attended with a lot of fan excitement in crowded gyms. When you got to Baylor, games weren't as well-attended or well-publicized. We didn't have a crowd. If we had our parents there, that counted for 25 if we went to, if we played at home, and there happened to be a class, an eight o'clock class that night, they might come a little early to class and sit and watch till class started. We didn't have a student following. To be honest, there was no kind of media following. I mean, it was reported in the Lariat, the Baylor newspaper, uh, a little bit in Waco paper, but it wasn't followed like high school. I didn't like it, but we got to go out to the heart of Texas Coliseum. We were told we were going to play some home games out there. And, you know, I love Rena Mars. I thought it was a great gymnasium. I thought it was a true basketball gymnasium, wood floor, wood bleachers. I just Everything about it had a lot of character. We went out to the Coliseum. You know, it was a very open place. We took our 25 parents out there because, you know, it wasn't on campus, so there weren't going to be any students coming. So... We took our 25 parents. Well, they were lost at the Coliseum. It was a big echo chamber, and, you know, everything was so much wider, opened up and wider than what we had at Rena Mars and what we normally played under. And I didn't like it. The first two balls I shot in the game were air balls, and I just had to really work hard to adjust my line of vision. But it, it, it happened. You know, it's a gym to gym. But at the same time, if you're going to play a home court game, we told our coach, we just said, we'd really rather play at Arena Mars if that's, you know, if it's an option. One thing that's interesting about the time is that the NCAA was not the sanctioning body for women's athletics. During that period, it was the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, the AIAW. I never played under the NCAA. Never. I played under the AIAW governing body. And the AIAW, they set up the national tournaments. We covered that a little bit in the Jody Conrad episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, and we'll cover it more in this Nine for Title IX series. And some of the top women's basketball programs 
at that time were small schools, such as the Wayland Baptist Flying Queens and Delta State. But you were helping build the Baylor program. And in your junior year, Baylor got pretty far in the national tournament. My junior year, we went, and I mean, it was a real learning experience for us. And, and we got to, oh, oh yeah, yes, we got to play Delta State, who back that time had Lucy Harris, who was a several-time All-American and great ball player. The whole program at Delta State was excellent, and we got down 20 points which that didn't happen often in our game. We got beat by them. And what was kind of interesting about the national tournament was even though you got beat, it wasn't a one and done. You went out and you played it like a tournament. I know my junior year we won seventh place. And we lost, I believe, two games to get that seventh place finished. I can't remember the other team we lost to. That was at 10 State. And then your senior year, you made it that far again, and you had quite a fantastic finish to your playing career. My senior year, we went to Minnesota. We lost, so we got in the loser's bracket, and that was the only game we lost. We ended up winning fifth, so we might have lost the second game there. I can't really remember, but we got to fifth place. We won fifth, and the greatest game that we had there, and, and it really was a way for me to end my career I was glad I didn't end on a loss. We played Southern Connecticut, and we got down about 20 points in the first half, and things were not going good. And I don't know. It just, you know, it just kind of hit us. It was we, we had a real competitive spirit and, and nature about us, and we all were pretty like-minded. And I don't know. After the half, we sat there. I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? This is my last game, man. Let's go for it. And so... There were a couple of things that happened. We got a couple of steals here and there and a couple of easy baskets. And then all of a sudden, man, I don't know. I don't turn around and look. I started looking in the eyes of my teammates. And, man, it was like, let's do this. And we took off. And this whole place, we didn't have a large crowd that followed us in Minnesota except for a few parents. And so all of a sudden the gym was cheering for us because we were coming back. And... Oh, the, the spectators, it was so awesome, and that just fueled our fire. And we ended up, we, we closed that game down, and we won it. And it was so great because we were, everyone was so proud that we could do that. And plus the fact when we walked off the court, we had a lot of people we didn't even know that were patting us on the back saying, great job, great job. And, you know, I, I knew then that Baylor had arrived. There was a future. There was a future that was going to grow there, and that my work was done, but it was the seed was planted. It was so great, so great. That's that's the kind of you know college career you you dream of ending like that. And, and that year we also had beat Wayland, which was always a top competitor with us. We beat them at the regionals to get to go. So you know things were happening. And then a plus for me was the team came back from Minnesota. We we flew to that. We we had to fly. We we flew up there and. The team came back, and I got to stay after the tournament. They had the banquet with the All-American, and I was selected for that. So it was it was a great way to end my college and my playing days. Susie, you received the very first women's athletic scholarship at Baylor, and you made All-American. You had an outstanding college sports career that helped build a program that has since won national championships. Your career started just after Title IX was passed. Where do you think things would be if not for Title IX? 
if it wasn't for Title Nine, wow, um, women might still be. Well, we are still kind of fighting for the for a lot of things, but I look at the women's game now, and I look at the TV coverage, and I look at the. I look in the stands and I see all the people and I see the product that's out there and I see how much the game has changed. And if it wasn't for Title IX, none of that would exist, I don't think. I, I, I don't know. We might still be on the way to getting there. It was probably going to happen eventually. But I think Title IX sped that up. I think it's given women a chance to continue playing I think now women have heroes that they didn't have before because when I grew up, my heroes were guys with the exception of Babe Zaharis. My heroes were men, and now girls have people to look up to. And, you know, I don't know. Without Tyler Nine, I just don't think any of those things would... I'm not going to say they wouldn't be happening. I just think that it has accelerated and women can be proud of what they are and what has been accomplished even from back in my days and before me, you know, what women have gone through for those things to have happened. There was a lot going on in those times, and there was a lot of resistance being met by people in authority of athletic programs. There were some that just didn't believe it was going to be a good thing, and now look at it. I mean, this thing, it's not just basketball. It's its everywhere. Everything is so strong now, and you know, I can look back and be proud of the fact that I was a part of that. And I'm going to tell you, I often had wondered, what in the world would I have done? What would I have done? One, had we had not moved to Robinson. And two, if I just had not had that opportunity, I have wondered what I would have become. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know what I would have become, but I just had this feeling that my life might not be as richer or as fulfilled as it is now because of being able to compete and to go through the joys of learning to be an athlete and then applying that, all of that to your later life. I mean, God, those lessons are just so invaluable. It was a real magical time. And, and it, the good thing is when I left later, like I said, it was at a place that was left on the rise, and that, too, that was pretty important. Thank you for listening to episode two of our Nine for Title Nine series with Susie Snyder Appers, celebrating 50 years of Title Nine on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton in Waco. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, and when you do, score a three-pointer and book your stay at the Hampton in Waco. Next week, we will be joined by one of the greatest pitchers in softball history, Cat Osterman. Be sure to follow the Texas Sports Hall of Fame on social media to keep up to date with all of the great things happening at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame.